The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. It's a blessing and a privilege to open God's word with you and as a new elder and to look at you and to consider uh, just the, the joy of shepherding and to look at you and be able to share God's word with you in this way. It is a delight. My text this morning is Philippians 4, 2-9. And within this passage, I want to give particular attention to verses 6-9, to where Paul focuses on the life of the mind. And then, even more narrowly, I want to give special attention to verse 8. That's where we're really going to land and spend the bulk of our time. And ask, what is it that you think about? We all do it, at least I imagine that you do it because it's so much a part of me that I can't imagine that you don't do it. That is, have conversations with other people completely in your own head. Your your snicker tells me, yeah, you're, you're with me, you understand. We might be anticipating a coming conversation. So we think about how it might go, what we will say, how they might respond, and how we might reply back again. Sometimes it's looking back over a past conversation and rethinking how it actually went, how it might have been different. I should have said this or I should have said that. I wonder if you're like me and have actually sat directly in someone's presence right before them and had a full-blown conversation with them entirely in your head. 
I can tell you from maybe too much experience, those conversations usually do not go very well. In my own head, I have far too high an opinion of my own thoughts and actually care far too little for what the other person actually thinks. So I imagine what they would say, not what they're not really interested in what they really would say. The life of the mind is a fertile field, and frankly, it's quite full of weeds. Have you ever considered just how much Scripture addresses the life of the mind? In Romans 12, too, Paul tells us what goes on in the space between our ears is vital for Christian maturity. He writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here Paul very helpfully describes what maturity looks like. It is, first of all, not being shaped by the values and passions that drive the world. And it is secondly, discerning what is good and pleasing in God's eyes. But Paul helps us even more by showing the pathway to maturity. It comes by having our minds transformed, our minds renewed. You see, the circuitry of our brains needs to be rewired. We need to gain a frame of mind shaped by God's words by its terms, by its definitions, by its categories, by its patterns of thinking. This is precisely what Philippians 4, verse 8, aims to accomplish, where Paul says, think about these things. He is aiming to reshape the categories and the patterns of our thinking. Yet, Christian maturity is not only an activity of the mind. I would even argue that Christian maturity is not even primarily an activity of the mind. I think Scripture argues that it's primarily an activity of the heart. The main verb of the great commandment is love. You shall love the Lord your God. But the heart does not love what it loves apart from what the mind thinks. To the contrary, the workings of our minds are integral to the affections of our heart. The commandment makes the point plain. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Loving God as we ought to entails bringing our whole heart and our whole mind to the table. The main point of this sermon is that the life of the mind is, in the same way, integral to the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, If we are to love our brothers and sister in Christ as Christ loves them, 
then we're going to have to engage our minds. In other words, we need to think well in order to love one another well. Paul's main topic in Philippians 4, 6-9 is the life of the mind. What should we give our minds to? I want to land especially on Paul's exhortation in verse 8, think on these things. But let's see the full context. Verse 8 begins, Finally, brothers. Why does Paul say finally here? Is it one of those preacher lasts? Paul does not close the letter here. Beginning at verse 10, he raises an entirely new point of encouragement for the Philippian church. This is not the end of the letter. Finally here does not mean, well, last of all, he means that verses 8 and 9, finally, are the last in this particular set of instructions, a unit that begins all the way back at verse 2. And from verse 2 through verse 9, there are eight specific commands that Paul gives. In verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Then in verse 3, Paul asks the unnamed church leader to help these two dear ladies, help them come to terms with one another. Paul, and then in verse 4, offers the well-known call to rejoice in the Lord always. It's worth repeating, and so he says, and again I will say, rejoice. The fourth command comes in verse 5. Paul adds, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And he grounds that with this truth. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Verses 6 and 7, we have the next two commands. Paul here narrows the focus to the life of the mind and he warns, do not be anxious about anything. Does that strike you as a hard command? Many years ago, Leanne and I had a friend who struggled with severe anxiety. The fears of her heart ran on a continual loop in her brain. They, they just did not shut off. It was simply relentless. And for many years, she hated this verse. She hated it. She could not understand why God would be so mean as to tell her to simply stop being anxious. If she could turn it off like a switch, she would have done so long ago. She hated this verse until she recognized that she had totally disconnected this command, be anxious, don't be anxious about anything. She had disconnected that command from the rest of the verse. You see, the Spirit knows our frame and He knows the help we need. He knows we cannot just shut anxiety off. But we can replace it. We can short-circuit anxiety with a different pattern of thinking. We can give our minds and our hearts to something else. So the command, in everything, let your requests be made known to God, is a command that offers the means to obey 
the command to don't be anxious about anything. Our friend had thought, I first need to shut off the anxiety and then I will know how to pray. I will be able to pray. She had separated the two and first I need to do this. Until I get this, I can't get anywhere else. And she couldn't even begin to start to turn off the anxiety. But when she saw that one was a means to the other, she saw God's grace and help that to turn to God in prayer, thankful prayer. God, I thank you for these very things that terrify me. And she worked hard to see how she could be thankful for these things, to lay them before God and let her request pour out there. God began to rewire the workings of our hearts. And with joy, unbelievable joy, the peace of God guarded her heart and her mind and gave her freedom from anxiety. It was a long, long journey. But God blessed her in it. So pray with thankfulness over the things that would conspire to destroy your peace of mind. And it comes with this promise. The God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Verse 8 and 9, we have the last two commands. Think about these things. And the companion in verse 9, practice these things. So there's the list of commands. Now, some would argue that Paul is simply walking through a a list of disconnected bullet points, rather miscellaneous points of instruction. I don't want to overstate the case in the other direction and say that verses 2 to 9 are all tied together by a tight theme. They're not. But neither are they unrelated I invite you to consider how the commands in verses 4 to 9 might not be so distant from the situation involving Yodia and Syntyche back in verse 2 and 3. I invite you to put yourself in the shoes of one of the believers in the church there at Philippi. Epaphroditus, a dear friend, has been sent by the church bearing a financial gift to visit Paul in Rome to encourage him in his present trial. After many months away, Epaphroditus has returned at last, bearing a letter from Paul to be read to the whole Philippian church, a congregation for whom Paul has much affection. The brothers and sisters have gathered, and Epaphroditus begins to read. Paul's letter is warm and inviting, full of hope and joy and confidence. His instruction is timely. You you think, "I, I needed to hear these reminders. This is good for my soul. And Epaphroditus continues. And then, somewhat suddenly, Paul very, very squarely addresses the elephant that's in the room. Everyone knows about the tension between Yodia and Syntyche, but no one has really known what to do, how to help them. And now here, right in this letter to the whole congregation, Paul calls them out by name. 
he doesn't scold them. He pleads with them. He invites them to lay down their differences and agree in the Lord. Just put yourself in that scene. What are you thinking? What are you going to think about what Epaphroditus reads next? Now, I'm, a, I'm obviously using my imagination here. I'm calling you to use your imagination. But I can scarcely imagine that when Epaphroditus continued to read, that the congregation simply received the next lines of Paul's letter as somehow detached bullet points on miscellaneous topics. Everything else that Epaphroditus reads until the topic blatantly changes, everything else he reads is being run through that filter of that situation, that elephant in the room and the tension between these two dear ladies. After calling upon the church leaders and indeed the whole congregation to help these women, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. Always. Yes, even in this circumstance. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness, that is, your willingness to defer to the other, be, let it be your hallmark of your relationships. It's in this context that he says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray with thankfulness. How much of our anxiety is caused by some tension in a personal relationship? How and how sweet is the fruit of peace that comes through praying with a sincerely thankful heart? In other words, as we come to verse 8, where Paul gives a list of virtues that we are to think on, I want to deliberately examine this list through the lens of how we think about other believers, especially when things are not as they ought to be. This is not the only way to ponder these virtues, but the text warrants that we do reflect on them in this light. And here's the main point. The life of the mind has everything to do with our life together in community. The life of the mind has everything to do with our life together in community. We need to think well in order to love one another well. Let's explore, first of all, what Paul means when he says think. He has in mind a particular kind of thinking, to contemplate in order to come to a full understanding It's the sort of thinking that carefully considers a matter and makes an accurate assessment. Let me show you two examples from Paul's own life of this sort of thinking. Look back to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul speaks about pursuing full, perfect maturity in Christ. And he says, brothers, I do not consider, there's our word, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, Paul has thought about his walk with Christ. He has considered the state of his heart and the habits of his life. And in his own self-assessment, he does not say, I've arrived. So he presses on every day until the last day 
when he would be made complete in Christ. Another example of this sort of thinking is Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, where Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here Paul has given much thought about the nature and the reality of suffering, for he has suffered much. One help Paul found was considering the glory that awaits him, the fullness of joy and complete peace and rest with Christ. He has weighed the matter and come to understand that even if he were to take the whole sum of all his earthly suffering and put it on the scale, that future glory would not even fit on the same scale. The two are categorically different. It's like trying to relate the the length of this pen to the breadth of our entire galaxy. They just don't even compare. It's not worth comparing. Do you see what Paul has done in both of these cases? His thinking on these things is a sort of careful pondering that goes beyond quick superficial judgments. He thinks carefully in order to make an accurate account of the way things really are. So then, this is the kind of thinking the apostle calls us to in Philippians 4.8. And better still, he gives specific help by cataloging what sorts of things we are to contemplate and weigh on the scales. Let's consider each one in turn. First, whatever is true. Well, it might seem obvious that we are to think true things, of course. We must not gloss over this first exhortation. In reality we all quite naturally think that whatever we think is true. It's just our default operating assumption. It does not even matter how many times we've been corrected in life or how many times we recognize that we were wrong about this or that and then have to adjust our thinking. That can happen all the time. Hopefully it does happen all the time. We still start every single day blithely assuming we're right. Further still, even when we actually are correct, we never truly see the whole matter exactly as it is. We simply don't have that capacity. And so we need to hear this word from the Spirit. Whatever is true, whatever is true, contemplate these things. We need to stop that internal conversation and start asking ourselves, what is true here? What truths am I blind to? What truths am I reluctant to acknowledge willfully? Are there factors which I really do not want to add into the equation? Whatever is true, think about these things. Second, whatever is honorable. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this word is translated dignified. 
In 1 Timothy 3, 4, elders are to be men who manage their homes with dignity. And then in verses 8 and 11 of the same chapter, deacons must be dignified. Likewise, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, honorable, dignified, noble, whatever is worthy of respect. The concept encompasses the whole scope of a person's character. We can see this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, where Paul exhorts believers to pray for all people, especially governing leaders, to the end that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So think about whatever is worthy of respect in another. As I thought about who in Scripture might exemplify this sort of thinking, Priscilla and Aquila, that husband-wife team, quickly came to mind. In Acts 18, Luke writes about a man named Apollos who came to Ephesus proclaiming the gospel accurately but without knowing the whole story. He didn't have all of the information. The account is in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Now, a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures what the Christ that the Christ was Jesus. It is Luke who tells us about Apollos' noble character. Yet, in the context, it seems very clear that Priscilla and Aquila themselves carefully considered his character. And that shaped how they responded to him. When they heard him, they recognized he needed some correction. He wasn't teaching the whole gospel. But they assessed what was honorable. They understood that he was competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. They saw that he was an honorable man, and so they treated him with dignity. And then later when he desired to travel on and continue his ministry, the church was able to send a warm letter of recommendation along with him. So should it be in our fellowship. Whatever is honorable, think about these things. Whatever is just, justice is certainly at the forefront of many people's minds today in our culture. It it ought to be. God is just, and we bear his image. So a longing for justice is a godly longing. 
The danger of our culture is that turning justice into a mere catchword. Whenever someone wants to, their particular issue to gain traction in our society, all they need to do is attach the word justice to their cause and automatically it's the right thing to do. But there is only one true standard of justice and that is the character of God. The God who reveals himself in Scripture the God of whom the redeemed will sing, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. For you alone are holy. Your righteous, your just acts have been revealed. Oh, let us think carefully about whatever and all that is just in God's eyes. Whatever is pure, unblemished, spotless. None of us fit this description. We know very well our sinful frame. But so do the prophets and the apostles. And our human frailty does not hinder them from calling us to be holy even as He is holy. To keep ourselves pure, not taking part in the sins of others. We are to turn away from sin and grow up into maturity. The Apostle John writes about the purity that we mature toward but will only fully experience at the resurrection when he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself even as He is pure. 1 John chapter 3. In other words, it is worth contemplating not only what is, but what will be. It's very easy, especially in the midst of conflict and tension, to dwell on all that is not the way it ought to be. But one way to obey Paul's command and call to contemplate all that is pure is to look at the other person and look beyond what they are at the present moment and consider what they will be, what Christ is making of them, what he is making of his church. He is preparing a pure and spotless bride. Whatever is pure, think about these things. Whatever is lovely, this particular word does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's not strange that Paul includes whatever is lovely, pleasing, delightful among the sorts of things that we ought to contemplate. Paul is pressing deep into our heart motivations. We were made to chase after beauty, to pursue that which delights our hearts. So why does Paul need to tell us to stop and consider whatever is lovely? I think in part because the fundamental problem is that our sin and other sins against us cloud and clutter our hearts so that we fail to see beauty as we ought to. 
The Lord describes both sides of the problem very boldly through the prophet Jeremiah saying, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's the twofold issue. When we were separated from Christ, we were first of all blind to the beauty of God. We're still, we considered all manner of ungodliness as lovely and attractive. Into this willful blindness, Christ comes full of grace and truth. The Spirit removes the scales from our eyes so that we see what is truly loving and pleasing for what it actually is. First, we see Christ Himself is beautiful as all our hope and joy. And then the Spirit continues that sanctifying work so that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are called to see our brothers and sisters in Christ through gospel-colored lenses. This does not mean that we turn a blind eye to their sin. We are indeed to confess our sins one to another. But we can kill the sin of a critical spirit by giving careful thought to the beauty Christ is working in others, to delight in them for the sake of Christ. Whatever is lovely, think about these things. Finally, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. These last three categories have so much overlap, it seems as though Paul is layering one term upon another in order to span the whole breadth of Christ-like character. Whatever is commendable, That is, what is there that you can say, yes, well done to? If there is any excellence, this term is most often used with reference to God, His excellencies, His perfections. Thus, in others, we are to contemplate whatever reflects godly character. If there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, that's not just merely granting our approval. It it is that. But it's asking, what can I praise God for in this situation or in this person's life? And those final two are phrased with an if. If there is anything. That if adds a certain diligence to our thought-filled pursuit to carefully think about anything and everything that is praiseworthy. And if you can't think of anything, it may be that you're not thinking as you ought to. Dear brothers and sisters, dear Bethlehem, we need to think well in order to love one another well. We've been united in Christ brought together into this community of faith. In our shared life together, let us walk by the Spirit 
not gratifying the desires of the flesh, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit, nurturing a healthy life of the mind. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And Paul adds, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let us so think and let us so walk for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the building up of his church. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.